0: The title of the message is Build Your Life on the Foundation. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 down to verse 22. And it reads the following. Paul is writing he's actually writing from prison. He says, "Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the What's the next word, you guys? Foundation. Okay, it's very important. Okay, foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together, for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, that's a mouthful. It's incredible. You may have a seat at this time. We want to dig into it. Look, why are we studying Ephesians? You know, why are we giving so much time to it? I mean, think about it. This was written by a man who was in prison 2,000 years ago. I mean, he's in the estate of the most powerful man, politically and militarily, at that time, the emperor of rome who happened to be nero and he was a crazy man and he has been arrested this man we're talking about who penned this book paul uh, i believe inspired by the holy spirit he was arrested in jerusalem and uh, while he was a jew he was also a roman citizen it's a long story we don't have time to develop it he, he gave in a he appealed to caesar and it was, it, it was incredible as a, a roman citizen two thousand years ago one of your rights if you were arrested was actually to appeal to the most powerful man in the world at that particular time. It's incredible. And there's really a, there's really a connection, a correlation uh, to being a citizen of the kingdom of God, which we've been talking about, which is awesome, is a big idea, because we have these legal rights that have been given to us by the grace of God that we have access not to the emperor, but we have access to the king himself, the Lord God Almighty. It's incredible. All right, but look, why are we studying this? This is our 15th study. I mean, it's going to take us about 10 years to finish at this pace, right? Just kidding. Um, but why so much mental energy? Why should we care? What does this have to do with your life and my life? In short, here's the answer. Because what you believe impacts your outlook on life, your priorities. Your values, your influence, yes, even your eternity. Look, someone might be thinking, aren't you overselling this idea of the importance of what you believe? No, I'm not overselling it whatsoever. I mean, someone might say, Well, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe. I mean, just be kind and stuff. But see, if someone says that, they're actually promoting a belief. What they're saying is it doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you're kind and you do some right things. It's very difficult to get away from the importance of what a person believes because what a person believes informs their life, right? It's like downloading information on your computer. It's like, what, what I believe is the information that's informing my outlook, my priorities, my values, how I view the opposite sex, how I view God, what a person believes is super important. Look, if you're interviewing for a job, it's important what you believe. I mean, if you're entering a marriage, it's really important what you believe. If you're investing your money, it's really important what you believe. If you're raising children, it's really important what you believe. I mean, what you believe is incredibly important. Jesus said, take heed what you hear. Be careful about what's informing your outlook, your thinking, your priorities, your values, your beliefs. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all, guard your, can someone tell me? Heart. Man, you want to guard your intellectual life, emotional life, volitional life. Your heart is all of those things. Here's the question. Is there a foundation that we are to base our beliefs on that should inform our life. And I use the word foundation. Please look, look at verse 20 because Paul addresses the word. He speaks of a foundation, and a foundation speaks of something that is solid and secure. You know, I'm looking out at a friend here this morning who's up in the front row, and he's a builder. Alright, let's put him on the spot. But he's, and, and, and if he were to come up here and I'd ask him, how important is a foundation to a home? Uh, well, it'd be interesting to see. He, he might say, oh my goodness gracious. I mean, that's where you begin. I mean, it's, it, it's maybe the most important thing because once you lay a foundation, you see what it's speaking of is then an investment of what you put on it, right? So it's like, then you're putting all these materials and design, and then you're putting human beings in that home and stuff, all of these very important assets. So if you don't have a strong foundation, the consequences can be huge. You can lose so much. And every one of us, you guys, has a foundation that we are building our life on. And on a daily basis, we are making decisions based on this foundation. Decisions that are a type of investment, like building you know, with choices that we make with regard to our marriage and family and work, soul and the church and the future. The question is, are we building on the right foundation? Is it a solid foundation? How many of you had a curiosity, kind of maybe a stupid question, but I want to see hands go up here. How many of you ever heard of Shakespeare? Could you raise your hand real quick? Okay, how many of you, and one more question, how many of you would say that Shakespeare was like a literary genius? Could you raise your hand, right? All right, there's many of you. There's a few of you that didn't raise your hand and stuff. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> All right, well, look, um, a lot of people believe that Shakespeare, you know, Obviously, was an obviously an incredible literary poet and communicator. But a lot of people think, you know, he had a mind that just comes along like every hundred years. I mean, the guy was brilliant and he had a fantastic grasp on the nature of man. But as brilliant as Shakespeare was, let me tell you something, he couldn't rise above the, quote, spirit of the age he was in. He was unable to rise above the ideology of his generation. Was he a part of what was politically correct? Yes. Were his views reflective of the educational elite of the day? Yes. And today, when we read his play, The Merchant of Venice, it's embarrassing. It's more than that. It's disgusting. Why? Because it's anti-Semitic, that's why. And yet anti-Semitism was the terrible cultural view of his time. Here's my point. Can a person live above the spirit, the ideologies, the values of a particular generation? There's an old adage. He who marries the age, he who is like over-contemporary, if you will, be careful. Because you marry the age, you're going to find yourself a widower. And I just wonder how many people will be like a Shakespeare, as brilliant as he was. What well, he does, he, he left us a play, The Merchant of Venice, that's just like, gosh, man, you're just stinking promoting this anti-Semitism against Jews. And it's, an, it's, an, it's like the, you know, the fly in the ointment and stuff. It's, it's an embarrassing thing that he left us. And I just wonder how many people will be like a Shakespeare one day. And they'll look back and they'll just go, oh my goodness gracious, man, I was so wrong when it came to um, abortion. Oh man, I mean, I know that was a law and I know that so many people, okay, but I was so wrong. And, you know, that's tragic. And, and, you know, and there's forgiveness and there's redemption in Christ. And I don't pray. It, it's a very sore subject. But it's like, but, like, I, I just, this is a concern. I mean, can a person live above the spirit of the age? Hey, you know, it's like, well, man, I was so wrong when it came to um, this redefinition of the family and same-sex marriage and stuff. It's like, my goodness, we were so wrong on that. And they're so wrong when it came to that guy named Muhammad. I mean, seriously, with all due respect to I my mean, Islamic friends, it's like, hmm, we're going to learn a little bit. He's not the prophets being spoken of here. That's the foundation of, like, almighty God and the temple that God is building. He's not in that foundation whatsoever. And I just wonder how many people will look back and say, oh, man I, just, man, I just blew it with regard to the view of Israel, or even worse, you know, when it came to Jesus. It's I guarantee billions will look back and say, I have no pleasure saying this and be ashamed because they built their beliefs on the wrong foundation. As I said, there's an old adage that says, he who marries the age will find himself, herself a widower. I I mean, I think of Billy Graham. (laughs) I've told this story before, but, you know, he was giving these messages uh, at Harvard and Yale and sings in the late 60s, and someone asked him a question, hey, Billy, you know, the New York Times just reported that God is dead. You know, it's like, this is what people are thinking, all this turmoil and assassinations, and we're at war and stuff, and God is dead and stuff. What do you think about that? He said, it's impossible. I just spoke to him a few minutes ago, you know. Can a man rise above the ideology of the day? Look, one day, we're all going to stand before the Lord who made us. The Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die, then the judgment. And do you know the Bible tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, can someone tell me, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Point being this that one day, whether the person has a right relationship with God or not, and that right relationship is determined in this life, not once you die, because then it's sealed, but that every single human being will go, whoa, man, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. I mean, and and he was the Lord all along, and he's like the king all along. Every single human being, big, small, black, white, president, so, mother, janitor, whatever the case is, guarantee will bow that, to the fact that Jesus is the Lord. Guaranteed, that's going to happen. See, what we need, what we need is is revelation, which means having a knowledge outside ourselves, outside of our own little world. And sure enough, this is the foundation that we are to build our lives on, and it's identified for us in this passage. See, look at verse 20. When it says, having built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, well, the apostles were the eyewitnesses of the life, ministry, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So you didn't have a more credible witnesses than Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the guys, and, and because they were witnesses of Jesus' life, witnesses of his teaching, witnesses of his miracles, that simply demonstrated that the king had come down, showing us what the divine looks like, meeting planet Earth. Okay? And you could not find more credible witnesses than these guys. I mean, like all of them experienced the fact that he had conquered the grave, that he clearly demonstrated that he was the king. And then they saw him ascend to heaven. Okay, So you could not find more credible witnesses. You could not find more authoritative conduits of the message of the gospel. The fact that Paul identifies apostles first and then prophets second suggests that Paul means New Testament prophets to whom the message of the person and work of Christ are actually being proclaimed. So don't think of like a prophet identifying future events because That's not what's meant here. There's kind of two ways to look at a prophet. One is who does identify future events, but a prophet is also someone who foretells the word of God. So a New Testament prophet is not so much someone identifying future events as bringing application, understanding of the truth of the gospel, and Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 support this. I think we have it up on the screen when it says, the mystery of Christ has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Now, look, with all due respect to our Mormon friends, okay, the founder of Mormonism, okay, he's, he's not one of these apostles. Okay, with all due respect to, you know, our Islamic friends, okay, Muhammad is not one of the prophets that are being addressed here. How many of you are tracking with me so far on that? Okay, that's not what he's talking about. We're talking about the apostles and prophets who lived in the first century, who played a foundational role in the church. Why? Because their message embodied the fulfillment of God's plan in the Messiah of Israel big idea, this is progressive revelation rooted in God's call and covenants given to Israel, purpose to bless the entire world, which has now been fulfilled. And these apostles and prophets embody that fulfillment that goes all the way back to the call of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the entire world would be blessed in the Messiah, Which, which Paul, look at verse 20, identifies as the chief cornerstone. Okay, one commentator captured the idea saying literally means at the tip of the ankle. Referring to Jesus, it refers to the capstone or the binding stone that holds the whole structure together. Often the royal name was inscribed on it. One commentator said, in the East, it was considered to be even more important than the foundation. Gosh, I wish I could take all of you to Israel right now because one of the places I would take you wouldn't be like the first place I would take you. I'd take you first to the Mount of Olives, look over the city of Jerusalem, go down the Kidron Valley. Don't get me started. I love that. Anyways, okay. But I would eventually take you hmm, along the Western Wall. And, and if you go north along the Western Wall, you have to go underneath the present day city, uh, to hold on the story. And what you're gonna, do, what we're gonna come up against is one of the foundational stones of the temple. And, and particularly the, the, the retaining wall, the Western Wall. And this stone is monstrous. It's like 30 feet long. It's the size of a railroad box car. It weighs the equivalent of two 747 jumbo jets filled with passengers. I'm telling you, it's so phenomenal. It's so awesome. It's like it starts here and you're walking along 30 feet and you're, my goodness gracious, this monstrous. How did they cut this? How did they move it in things? But see, it helps to carry the weight of what is built on top of it. The chief cornerstone You just get this. There's this foundation, all right? And the foundation is the truth of who God is. And the foundation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ. Can I hear an amen to that, all right? I mean, that's the foundation, right? The chief cornerstone is Jesus himself. And this is a beautiful, powerful, and even prophetic picture because the Bible says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious stone cornerstone for a sure foundation and the one who trusts will never be dismayed look what have we said so far we've we've said you know and asking the question why are we studying this it's like well in short we're studying this because it's so important but what you believe Because what you believe is going to form your life, your priorities, your values, see the opposite sex, the future, what's most important. I mean, your life's going to impact this generation, future generations. What you believe is going to impact your eternity. Okay? What we believe is super important, and there's a foundation that we are to build our lives on, so to speak. Our Lord is building our lives on in Christ, and that foundation is the person and work of Jesus. So how is he building our lives through our faith in him? How is he building this new humanity that he's creating in himself? Here's what Paul does, okay? Because look, one of our objectives at our church, you guys, is one, we want to be committed to really what the Bible says. We want to give clear explanation of the scripture. We really, we want to... You know, in principle, go verse by verse. And, and like, what is this really saying to us? We want there to be in, integrous teaching, clear explanation of the Bible. That's a good objective. And then we want to ask, okay, Lord, you want to inform us correctly, but then not only that, but you want to transform our lives. That's preaching as I see it. And then it's like, we want to give invitation, we want people to come to know Jesus Christ. But as a church, if we are committed, seriously, to the explanation of Scripture, we're really committed to like, okay, what is this saying? You know, take some diligence. <laughs> take some time. It's important, though. Super important. Because we're not going to get the right application for our life unless we understand what the Bible is teaching. So I say that because please look with me in verse 19. Find the term citizens there, Okay? Chapter two, verse 19, do you see that? But fellow citizens, find the term household. You guys see that there, all right? In my Bible, I've underlined household. Um, But you have citizens, that's a metaphor he's using. Household, um, it's a metaphor he's using to communicate divine realities and truth. Jump down to verse 21, find the term household holy temple do you guys see that there in verse 21 see paul is using three metaphors here to communicate these divine realities of what god's will is for our life what it is to be in christ okay and i don't want to overthink this but if i could say quickly well, the the point really isn't the metaphor. The point is the meaning of the metaphor. And if you just think about words, and words are very important, but I'm not even so sure if any word in the, in the English language, I'm taking a little stab at this. Probably need a little education on this, but I'm going to go out on a limb on this. I'm not sure if any word in the English language actually identifies in an entirety the reality that's even addressing in the future like if i say you know my wife's name is is stephanie but you know i've said this many times but like okay and it means crown and she's a crown to me she's like like the most important jewel on a human level in my life but she's a whole lot bigger than the name stephanie i mean her reality of who she is is much bigger than her name okay so why would Paul like use citizen go talk about it, citizen, household and then holy temple? Well, um, I'm really glad he did and he's mixing his metaphors. Obviously he didn't take freshman English, you know what I mean? So everybody's he's mixing his metaphors. I'm glad he did because it gives us further insight to the incredible beauty and reality of what it is to be in Jesus. And, and last week, let's talk about citizen real quick. We, you know, we just made the point life is more political than you may think because it comes down to whether you're a citizen of heaven or not i mean when you're a citizen of heaven here's the idea you have power that becomes redefined your values become redefined your priorities become redefined your purposes your legalities your freedoms they all become redefined it's like you know James and John ask Jesus, actually, they had their nice Jewish mother ask Jesus, when he gets to Jerusalem, can my boy sit on your right hand, uh, one on your right and one on your left? Right? So they're thinking, okay, the Lord, you're going to come, you're going to knock out the red coats, the Romans, you're going to purge Jerusalem of injustice. I mean, you know, those things are not too bad, you know, <laughs> but, I mean, but, um, you know, you're going to come in and you're just going to exert power and you're going to establish your kingdom and we want to be up there you know, sitting with you in the seats, in the place of esteem. And basically Jesus said, look, um, I'm going to paraphrase it. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be great, but let me just redefine it. Because in the kingdom, the greatest among you shall be your what? Servant. So let me just redefine power. And and it's like even the son of man didn't come to just me sitting and everybody admiring in some elevated seat or something. I came to serve and that's how I'm going to build my kingdom. In fact, I'm going to demonstrate my love and service by giving myself as atonement for the sins of the world, a ransom for many. But well, let's, please hear me. Life is a lot more political than you may think. I'm not talking about whether you're a Republican or Democrat. I'm talking about whether you're a citizen of heaven or not. And it's awesome to be a citizen of heaven. We talked about it last week. Number one, because we have access To the king himself. Hey, that's good news, don't you think? And so we might ask ourselves hey, is prayer a first thought or is it a last resort? Because he hears us. As a citizen of heaven, it carries unique authority. I mean, do you face challenges in life with the authority that you are a child of God and dwelt by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead? Well, we need to. Because there's unique authority in our life. We are king's kids. And and then we talked about a citizen of heaven is actually an ambassador of Christ on planet Earth, which is incredible. So in other words, when we leave here, the idea is a little heaven, you know, is, is, you know, the Lord indwells you and he's working through you and, and you have a little heaven of God's glory and love and forgiveness and justice. It's like, you know, working in and through your life. It's incredible. Okay. Now look at verse 19. He continues. He talks about how we're members of the household of God. I mean, look, one way to frame all of this, and let me just, I I forgot to mention this. Look, there's a foundation to build our life on. Okay. It's The truth of God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, Jesus said. Okay, it's revelation. We need need understanding outside of ourselves. Otherwise, we're gonna find ourselves like Shakespeare, making some monster mistakes. Jesus said there's a broad way that leads to destruction, many go that way. And that's what Shakespeare, he was caught up in the intellectual lead of the day, which happens to be anti-Semitic. It's just, it was horribly wrong then, it's horribly wrong now. It's a stinking embarrassment to read the play. And we don't wanna, we don't wanna do that. Lord. Look, it's been said if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. I mean, it's, it's, it's the word of God, the truth of who the Lord is, who Jesus is that will last forever. Can I hear a big amen to that? So therefore, like, okay, then what does that mean in the here and now? Man, you're a citizen. <laughs> it's like today, just remember, you have phenomenal access to him. You have incredible authority. It's like, that's a big word. It's kind of sterile and, you know, maybe not so warm. But it simply means it's like the Lord's in you. And he's working his power. You have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It's incredible. We're ambassadors of him. We're his hands and feet. It's like, love people today. Help someone physically. Bear a burden. It's like, that's the hands and feet of Jesus. Share the gospel. Okay, watch. Here's another metaphor. I love this. Members of the, what's the next word? Of the household. Ooh, household. Hmm, I, I love a home. I mean, Look. When I hear household, it's a super warm idea to me. I mean, I not only grew up, by God's grace, I mean, I just, I didn't choose to exist, neither did you, and we didn't choose our parents and stuff like that, but you know, I just happened to be blessed with phenomenal parents. And, and um, I had a fantastic childhood. I'm out of my struggles. I needed to get saved, and so I needed the Lord. But you know, I'm just super grateful. My parents are still alive. They still love each other. They're still married. They, you know, um, just I'm I'm, I'm grateful. I, I know that for for many the household thing is not a particularly warm deal, but for me, I'm just it's super warm. And then you know, the Lord blessed me with the most beautiful person, my beautiful bride, who has given me a wonderful home. And to be frank with you, I I mean, I love being in the home. I'm kind of a homebody. (laughs) I love family. There's love, there's comfort, there's security, there's joy, there's laughter, there's harmony, so long as I control the remote control. Anyways, anyways, you know, so, but you know, there's Difficulties, there's strife at times. There's misunderstanding that you have to work through. You know, there's no doubt about that. But, oh man, I, I, I like that term: household warmth, at home. Let your hair down. I mean, we have a table in our home. It's our kitchen table. You know, bless I mean, It's not that big. I'm not even so sure. It's even longer than that keyboard. Maybe it is a little bit. It's a little wider than the keyboard. So, but, you know, it's been, we've had it for so many years. I can't tell you the memories around that table. I love to have dear friends over. We have dinner. We just sit at that table for hours, eat and talk and enjoy each other. I mean, I just, that, that little table means so much to me. It's all leading to this. Look, you guys, in Christ, the Lord having found us, we didn't really find him. It's like he, he not only made us a citizen, that <laughs> has these legality implications to which are awesome, but he brought us into a house and the household is the household of, can someone tell me? God, whoa. Now everything changes. You never wonder why Jesus said, truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because a child's relationships, it's not based on performance or even understanding, but love and trust. It's like when you're a kid, you don't have to totally understand your parents. You just trust them. And it's like, you know, they're driving you someplace. You don't have to understand the streets and stuff, they're going to get you there. It's just, it's a relationship based upon. Natural affections, the relationship based upon blood. It's not a relationship based upon understanding or performance. You know, it's based upon love and trust. I've told this story before, but my friend Greg Laurie tells a story of when you take his eldest son Christopher to Toys R Us. And Greg would say to Christopher, who now is in heaven, he would say, Christopher, What would you like to get, you know? And it didn't take long for Christopher to realize that his dad always had something higher in mind, you know? So Christopher would say, oh no, I'll I'll get this And But his dad's thinking, oh, how about this? You know, I was like, his dad was enjoying probably being at Toys R Us more than his son and just wanted to bless him. And eventually Christopher would say, "I I don't know what to get, dad. He said, you choose for me. Well, in the household of God, The Almighty is our Father. In Ephesians 3.14, it says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, in whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. It's like when the Lord comes into one's life, we actually have a new identity, the Bible says, in his presence by the Holy Spirit, where it's a spirit of adoption where now the Almighty becomes our Abba, our Father. It's a very endearing term. I know you know that. But, but look, go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 3. I want to drive this home uh, very clearly. Because if you look at verse 3, it says, Our Father has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Right? Now that, that's a whole lot bigger than Toys R Us, Right? So if you go kind of down the aisle, if you will, of every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, and you would just say, well, Father, you know what? I mean, you've given me every spiritual blessing in Christ. Forgiveness, hope beyond the grave, hope in the here and now. Relationship with you, okay? I mean, it's like, okay, well, Lord, you just go ahead and choose. I mean, you've given me every spiritual blessing. It's like, okay, Lord, well, what is it you would like to give me? And so therefore, one could say, based upon the promise that the Father has promised to supply our needs. I mean, that's one of the blessings in Christ. I mean, that's, that's a promise. You could just say, well, okay, well, Lord, how are you going to do that? I, I'm going to be interested to know how you, what you choose and how you're going to do it in my life. Father, you promised, you know, not to withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. Okay, Father, then you choose. I mean, how are you going to bless? Or Father, you promised that all things work together for the good. Okay, Lord, you choose. You know, Father, you promised that I would not be tempted beyond my ability to handle it, that you would make a way of escape. Okay, Lord, you choose. Or Father, you promised that in Jesus, nothing shall separate me from your love. And your love, you know, is not just an idea or theory, abstract. Okay, well, Lord. It's like, awesome. So I just, you, you choose. Because your choice is really, really good. Father knows best. And Father, you, you promise the help of the Holy Spirit if I just ask. Okay, so I'm going to ask. And then I'm just, okay, Lord. It's like, what are you going to do here? i just like, y- your choice is the best. Man, it's phenomenal. Just think of the warmth of this. You are in the household of Almighty God. Hey, can I hear an amen to that? It's, all, it's, like, it, it's like the Almighty is your Father. And, and being a child of God or a son, it changes, man, it changes everything. It, it changes the way you even view suffering. Because if you ever think God must be punishing me because I am suffering, no way. No way. There was enough punishment that it was already experienced by Jesus himself on the cross. That's why he came. He took our punishment upon himself. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if you are suffering and you're thinking, you know, God must be mad at me. He's punishing me in some way. No, no, no. The purpose of punishment is to inflict penalty. The focus of punishment is on the past and what you've done wrong. The attitude behind punishment is anger. I mean, there is no punishment for those who are in Christ. Now, there's discipline. Oh, yeah. Because our Father is a perfect trainer and discipline is intended to promote growth. And the focus of discipline is actually on the future, what you can be. And the attitude behind discipline is in fact love. Oh man, it's great to be a citizen. It's phenomenal as well to be in the household of God. It changes Everything, But there's more. Think of how being a part of the household of God even impacts how we view each other. Because now, look, we're all in the same house. <laughs> so we got, a, we got a bunch of brothers and sisters that are made of all kinds of different shapes and sizes. I mean, the house of God is the most, you know, diverse house and family on planet Earth. How many of you had a curiosity, you know, you go to another state, I don't know, you, you meet someone that you've never met before, but they're a Christian, and, and you just sense a, a connection there with that believer, you know. And, and sometimes it's even a connection that, you know, is a bit thicker sometimes than a family member. You know, it's just like, man, I I just, there's a sense of unity. There's a sense of identity. There's a sense of familiarity that I have with this person. Anybody ever experienced that out of curiosity? Yeah. I mean, I think we all have as believers. It's like, you know, I've been to Australia, for example, and I experienced it there among Christians. I've been to Germany. I, I experienced it there. I've been to Austria. I've experienced that. I've been to India. People I've never met before look totally different stuff, but they're believers. I've experienced it there. I've experienced in Israel as well. Listen, you know what really surprised me? I experienced it in New York City. That really freaked me out, you know? No, just kidding. Anyways, um, but it's like all of a sudden, it's like we are, you know, this one big family. And I am to treat those in the family as a brother or sister in Christ. The Bible says, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, Okay, younger women as sisters with all purity. So let's say you're single, okay, Okay. and you want to get married. And the Bible says you ought to marry a believer. Okay, well, how should you date this individual? Listen, you're to treat your sister with all purity. So look, I would boil it down this way. I'd say that means you're not going to put your sister in any Morally or physically compromising positions. So you're going to keep your hands off her in a sexual way. Because that, of course, would not be how you would treat a sister in your family, right? You would respect. You would protect them. And of course, the Bible says that love, I mean, if you want to really boil down what love is, love is both protective and it's both nurturing, So it's out for the highest good of the object of love, right? Look, we are in a big household. I am to treat those who are older than me like a father out of respect. Fathers treat younger men, okay, as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. I love how family love is identified in one of our core values. It simply states we love each other. The church is the most diverse family on planet Earth. There will be differences among Christians. However, we'll not tear each other apart. We commit to unity in our diversity. We will be responsible local Christians and global Christians. In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love. Right? All right. Citizen, household, look at with me in verse 21. Now we talked about, okay, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built. Together for a dwelling place of God in the can someone tell me? Spirit, I want to tell you, there's that. These are these ideas are so loaded, so phenomenal. Seriously, we could spend weeks on it. We're not, we're going to be drawing and under this out all the more in the weeks to come because Paul expands on actually the meaning of this. But look, look up here for a second if I can have your attention. I, I want you a temple. Here's the idea behind a temple a temple is a place. okay? It's a location where the divine meet the the human. It's where heaven um, comes down to earth. That's the idea behind a temple. Now, when Paul penned this book from prison, inspired by the Holy Spirit, there was a temple in Jerusalem. Okay, and it was still standing; it had not been destroyed. Jesus did prophesy it would be destroyed, but it had not been destroyed yet. All right, it had been there for a thousand years. Solomon first built the temple in Jerusalem. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then you have Zerubbabel who rebuilt the temple, and more recently. And I was going to bring all these pictures and stuff and show you all the stuff, but it'll be for another time. More recently, you have Herod, who has remodeled the temple, and it's been taking years. It's like it wasn't even finished by the time it was destroyed. It was phenomenal in its remodel. Now, please hear this. Okay, this is very important. When Jesus came to earth, he spoke of two temples that would be destroyed. He spoke of his own body as a temple of course, being destroyed, referring to the cross, and then being resurrected from the dead. But this is a very, very important understanding church family to get. I mean, if you get this, I mean, you can understand much of what the gospels are communicating to to us. Why did Jesus refer to himself as a temple? Because Jesus is God who has come to earth. Jesus is what heaven looks like, having come down to earth. Jesus is the divine meeting man. How many of you tracked with me right there? Okay. That's very important for us to understand. All right. So he talked about, well, look, destroy this temple. Okay? Is it referring to this crucifixion? Three days I'm going to resurrect. But like, hey, if you want to know. If you want to know what the glory of heaven is, okay, uh, on earth, just look at Jesus. If, you want, to, if you, you, want to, you want to see what it looks like that the king is in charge, the sovereign, just look at the life of Jesus. Look, look at his miracles. Look how he has control over demonic spirits and the winds and the waves. He can resurrect the dead. He brings healing, reconciliation, redemption. I mean, all of that is, is, is what it looks like when the king is in in charge. Jesus spoke of another temple. That was the temple of Jerusalem that would be destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 AD. Let me try to draw this out a little bit. Okay. I've had the privilege of being in Jerusalem many times and had all of our children there, not at the same time, different times. And with each one of them, I've brought them near to the western wall, which is the retaining wall that if you just like, you know, went over it you'd be on this 35 acre surface which is known as a temple mount where the temple resided where god uniquely dwelt where hundreds of thousands would come to worship and communicate in prayer with jesus walked atop the temple and so forth and so i'll take my children there so let me just kind of take you there in a way and and imagine we're you know they're looking at the western wall our jewish friends are praying and kind of imagining above the wall there's the big temple mount one time there was a temple there but it was destroyed in 70 a.d and um well, I, this is what I would say to them. I would hold them. with it was Greg and Pete, I took them to the Western Wall. We'd put our face up against it, and I would pray, and I'd whisper in their ears that, you know, there's a God who created them. <laughs> They're not a mistake. And this God has revealed himself. And, and it's been in a progressive way. The big term theologically is progressive Revelation that in the times past God spoke to our patriarchs the fathers and the prophets of various times and these last days he's given us like this phenomenal revelation in himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ but a part of that communication involved the Lord dwelling among Israel tabernacling with them there in the wilderness you know blessing them in Jerusalem, hovering over the city of Jerusalem, blessing the the building of Solomon's temple with this demonstration of the Shekinah glory of God. So I just kind of take him through this history. And then you had 2,000 years ago, Jesus walking right where we are and going up on the temple mount. You know, God, God tabernacling with us. God came down. Okay, and, and then he gives us life on the cross, demonstrating his love, resurrects his sins to heaven, demonstrating he's the king. Okay, so here we are in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is coming back to this city, but listen, he's a lot more closer than you may think because now as a believer, he indwells you. The spirit of God indwells you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God wants to live through you. And in this context, you have the temple. Paul is addressing these three elements. There's a foundation and there's a cornerstone and building blocks. And I like how Ken Hughes put it. He says, what a fabulous image. I mean, picture Jesus Christ as the massive cornerstone and see his vitality as causing the stone to glow. Next, the foundational teaching of the apostles and prophets is laid upon and around him. He gives it shape and stability, and the whole foundation assumes its glow. And then one by one, living stones are set upon it, and they in turn radiate the symmetry of the chief cornerstone, forming a luminous, ever-growing temple. Now, who are the stones of this temple that the Lord is building for which he dwells. I mean, his presence is in the midst of this temple and he's building this temple of intimacy, of relationship with God, of influence to the entire world. Who are the stones? Well, you guessed it. It's you and I in Christ. I mean, Peter said, and as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. I'm reminded of a famous story of a Spartan king who boasted to a visiting king about the walls of Sparta. And the visiting king looked around and he could see no walls. And he said to the Spartan king, well, where are these walls about which you boast so much? And then the king pointed to the bodyguard of the magnificent troops. And he said, these, he said, are the walls of Sparta. Every man is a brick. Look, you in Christ, super important to this generation. I mean, uh, aren't these metaphors? If I were to say, aren't these metaphors cool? That'd be a silly way to say it, right? But the metaphors, the point isn't the metaphors. The, the, the point is the meaning of the metaphors. Oh my goodness gracious. It's like, you know, you look back in history, you got this progressive revelation. And then now, it's like the Lord is so much closer than you could ever imagine. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to come to this place, obviously, to know God. I mean, this, this is a building. I mean, what makes this place special is that you and I are here in Christ, and the Lord is here with us. But as we leave, I mean, all of us are living stones in the temple. I mean, just think of that metaphor. And, and listen, I, I want to encourage you on something. I want to encourage you that you are a part of something so much bigger than yourself. We just had this first growth group this morning. The first statement I made, I hope I remember it correctly, is that you need to live your life bigger than your lifetime on planet Earth. It's so true. Because everything is moving towards Jesus. Because once you were created, you are eternal. There are some things that last forever. We do for God, the love of God, the word of God. The kingdom of God. Hey, can I hear an amen to that? So you want to invest in, in the most weighty, important realities. Love, the gospel, both of those. Sharing your faith, being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. I, I, have, I have a friend, and he uses this phrase. In fact, he texted me, and he used this. And, okay. and, and I think Warren Buffett uses it as well, but he means it a little bit different way. And he, and he just talks about how important it is that Christians have skin in the game, <laughs> now Buffett would say that I means hey you invest some of your own money you know get involved I think of it a little different I didn't know Warren Buffett used it actually so I'm thinking about it how, from, coming from Southern California my friends who are saying hey how important it is that Christians have skin in the game in this generation I think of it athletically because if you're out there doing it loving Jesus loving others in Jesus name investing in the work of the gospel, investing in your neighbor, keeping your eyes on Christ, you know, forgiving people. um, It's not gonna be easy at times. You know, if you're out there in a football game, you're gonna leave some skin, It's kind of gross, but you're gonna leave some skin, you know, in the game, so to speak, right? Boy, in 2015, let's leave some skin in the game. President, Theodore Roosevelt, one of my favorite quotes, says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out the strong man's stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, and comes up short again and again because there's not effort without error and shortcomings. Paul will later say in chapter 4, hold to the truth in love. Becoming more and more in every way like Christ, who's the head of the body. It's a different metaphor. The church, under his direction, the whole body is fitted together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow. So that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Amen. Make sure, you get, make sure you get your skin in the game. <laughs> so important. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter seven. Hang in there. We're gonna be here just another hour. Don't worry about it. No, just kidding. We're almost done. Matthew chapter seven, we've been talking about a foundation. I wanna give an opportunity if you would like to receive Christ, build your life on the foundation that is sure that you will never regret. So in Christ, you're a citizen. Matthew chapter seven, we're going to read here in verse 21 down to verse 27. But in Christ, you are a citizen, right? Awesome. You're a son and daughter in the household of God. Awesome. You're a stone that makes up the temple God is building on the earth. Okay, check this out. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, have you not done many wonderful things in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you uh, who practice lawlessness. Verse 24, check this out. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the... Can someone tell me? Rock, there's that foundation, and the rain and descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on it house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. It's like, go back to the Shakespeare thing. It's like, you know, Shakespeare... you know. Um, Kind of feeling sorry for Shakespeare today, you know, (laughs) but he's being used so much, but you don't want to be like him in in the way that you know he just hey, he couldn't get above the spirit of his age. So it's like he's building his ideas on on the wrong foundation for sure, which clearly got flushed out, right? But if we build our life on the word of God, the truth of who God is, the truth of who Christ is, then our life is on like the rock. Right? And verse 26, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. This is is ominous here. And great, great was its fall. Listen, the Lord loves you, loves you. He loves you. He he wants relationship with you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him... Well, there's... Believe in Him would not perish. I mean, deteriorate self-defeat in the here and now, as well as throughout eternity, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Man, is that not awesome, you guys? And I just want to invite you. Look, there was a time in my life that I heard a lot of, in principle, what we've been talking about this morning. And then the guy said to me, look, you're either for Christ or against him. That's what Jesus said. Jesus called us to believe, to put our trust in him. The most important issue in life to inform your thinking, for you to believe, to accept, you know, um, is not who's going to win the Super Bowl. I mean, we all know it's going to be Seattle. Probably the wrong time to put that joke in there. But anyways, look, that's not the most important thing, right? The most important reality is is what you're going to do with Jesus.